Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast, and in this episode, we welcome back Oscar-winning director Patrick Osborne. Well, hello there. Welcome to the first proper Squiggly Podcast of 2017. It's coming up to uh, five years of this now. That's a sobering thought. Five years? Yeah. Blimey. I don't think I've committed to anything for five years in my entire life. It's a milestone. Apart from t-shirts. I've got t-shirts that are old. Happy actual New Year this time, Steve. <laughs> yeah, Happy New Year. How are you finding 2017? Oh, well, it's what an improvement over the demonic <laughs> Disney villain that was 2016. You know, it's weird. Someone, like, quasi-famous, I really like, died the other day, and I'm like... I was sad about it. I was like, should I express my sadness or is that like just so last year? Do we go back to the status quo of like when someone we like famous dies, we just make a joke about it on Twitter? It would be nice, wouldn't it? There was something in the air the whole of last year where like every celebrity death that may as well have been a member of our immediate family. I think the weird thing about 2016 was that it was a lot of really famous people that died at the beginning of the year. And then as the year trickled on, it was like, not really that famous people, but because we'd started something in January, people were like just finding any old celebrity death who people hadn't even thought about for like years. And then they were like, oh, what a shame. They died at 112 years old. What a what a what an actual actual shame. What a waste. What a waste. <laughs> it was it was a complete psychological like snowball state of like let's find the the most you know gut wrenching emotion porn we can <laughs> and blame the year. Yeah, that was what really started to annoy me after, and it didn't help. To I mean that was a pretty bad like one two punch at the end with Carrie Fisher and her mum. Mm-hmm. People get sort of caught up in things. I don't know if you saw the, the Charlie Bricker roundup screen wipe thing. Yes, yeah. Do you remember his like, little monologue about the era of meh? Yeah. And how that just completely changed. I thought that was a quite good summation of it. Yeah, um, it's, a, uh, it's a good one. I have to say, if we're going to talk about the animation industry and some of the films and stuff that came out, I thought that last year had a lot of perks. You kind of make your own, you know, you make your own... Uh, Destiny. Mm. Oh god, that sounded wanky. <laughs> I keep trying to, you know, I keep trying to not phrase things in a really awful, mawkish way. You, you sounded like they Doc ha- Brown at the end of Back to the Future Three. Then, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. In the uh, Did you listen to the outtake special? I did. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember speaking about Back to the Future for twenty minutes, but there it is. <laughs> there it was. <laughs> oh. oh. Hey, you know it's a good show. I think you'd like it. Uh, Rick and Morty. It's a lot of fun. Yeah? Is that, is that a rec- <laughs> How do you spell that? I finally got onto that one about uh, two months ago. I, I recommended that about three years ago on this podcast. You didn't, I know. You didn't obey my commands. <laughs> I, get, I get around to everything in the end. I get around to Game of Thrones in like 2019, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it is, it's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to uh, to more. Yeah, I, uh, I I recently got my other half into it, and we uh, we watched it all. We sort of binge watched it, and then right at the very end of season two, she's like, "Is it finished?" Because obviously there's a big cliffhanger at the end. Um, so yeah, now we're sort of like just sitting around, just doing nothing with our with our lives until uh, season three comes out. When it'll come out, nobody knows. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I know it's it's nice when you can kind of indoctrinate 
the uh, our significant others. Mm. I, I nearly nearly won uh, uh, won Laura around to Always Sunny because they started the new season was a musical episode, right? Which is brilliant, and the songs are like ridiculously like stick in your head for f-ing days. And then the second, the follow-up episode was another really dark, creepy one with ends with like a bloodbath, and so I put her off again. But uh, nearly, nearly won her over. It's interesting though how like a lot of people were resistant to Rick and Morty. Not resistant, but I would I would say probably the same thing that I had, which was I'll get around to it one day. Mm. And it's like it's the moment something appears on Netflix. It's like I guess today's the day. <laughs> You know, and I think that's probably why, like, it did seem like a lot of other people were, got into it around the same sort of time that had been kind of on the periphery of it for a while. Do you have a favorite uh, episode? Uh, there's one I really like with um, uh, with the sister, they're off doing something and the sister's like in a parking lot, like she's just waiting in the car <laughs> and the car is to keep her safe. It's like a smart car and it keeps her safe by doing really awful things to anyone that comes close to the car. <laughs> uh, the, the melting ghost baby. <laughs> the, the, yes. I, I remember at the time also when it first started being a little resistant to his voice for um, uh, Rick. And mm. actually after a few episodes, like a lot of shows after a few episodes, voices kind of settle into things. Like you always go back and, you, and it's not quite what it is yet. It takes a little while for it to sort of exercise itself and, and find a personality. You should listen to Justin Moylan's podcast. He, he doesn't update it anymore, obviously. He's quite busy. Uh, it's called Grandma's Virginity. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does loads of ad-libbed characters right the way through uh, each episode. Uh, so listening to one of those is like watching the episode where they're in the hospital or the episode where they're watching TV. Oh yeah, the um, yeah the the made up on the spot TV shows. Yeah, he does this version of Mario, who's just this broken man. <laughs> it's really, <laughs> it's really funny. Did Justin do the um, the original short, the Doc and Marty short? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had seen that a couple of times, having seen little sort of snippets of the show. I was like, oh wow, well, they they did develop this a <laughs> <laughs> little bit. <laughs> they must have got some notes back. And yet, I, I I was surprised actually because you you watch it's not a show that's um, family friendly. Certainly, I'm sure lots of kids love it, mm. but um, certainly in its presentation, it doesn't shy away from a lot of things. So that was fun. But then you know, like you said, you go through like two entire seasons like nothing. So yeah, catching up. 2017, seeing new Ben. He's going to be looking at all this new stuff from two years ago. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Bringing you all the latest up to date TV news from 2014. <laughs> Should we, should we saddle up and go through the BAFTAs, Ben? Yes, why not? <laughs> what, that's a fitting uh, way to kick off the year? Yeah. I dare say. So, the BAFTA nominations has been announced. And uh, we, don't, we don't care about, obviously, the way that people are sort of doing acting and things like that. We would rather look at the animation ones. And so, uh, the BAFTA nominees for animated film or it should really be animated feature film, are Finding Dory, uh, Kubo and Two Strings, Moana, and Zootropolis. So, all American, and three of them from Disney. Ben, what are your thoughts? Well, no surprise. No? I guess. Um, Not having seen Moana of the four, uh, I couldn't really say if that one is any better. I would assume that of of the three I have seen, it's tricky. I liked... Kubo a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Zootopia, I wonder whether that holds together a little better as a film, but I definitely preferred Kubo, personally. But, you know, Kubo is one of those films where I would kind of find myself losing track as I was watching the process more than I was watching the film. Uh, Zootopia is one of those films where you could kind of, like, you're carried along with it. Mm -hmm. Finding Dory to be honest i kind of felt was just okay in the sort of sober light of day looking back at it it's a very different thing in the annecy bubble of hyper enthusiasm for you know the big feature film premiere yeah that gives it a boost always in terms of uh the reception of a first viewing but i think at the time we talked about you know my sort of issues with the structure of it it's an odd one really isn't it mm. seeing uh so much disney and so much uh and having sequels in there as well I, i'm I'm not one over by the list, then, if I'm yeah. being honest. The most disappointing thing about this particular list, though, is the absence of Ethel and Ernest for me. Mm. And perhaps the absence of uh, The Red Turtle and My Life as a Courgette. However, I don't think The Red Turtle and My Life as a Courgette would have qualified this year because they've not had a uh, UK distribution yet. So they've not been uh, out in cinemas. However, Ethel and Ernest has, yeah. and I have it on good authority that it was entered this year, but it's not made the list, which is appalling if you think about its achievement as a British film, and as a film anyway. I thought it was something that should really have been encouraged as much as any of the others on this film. I mean, you could totally have knocked Finding Dory off this list and stuck Ethel and Ernest on there. I agree. I think it would have been a harder conversation than some of the others. And again, I haven't seen Moana, but I think, yeah, Dory Dory just sort of seemed kind of swam in there, if you'll pardon me, mm. on the coattails of, you know, the success of its predecessor. And, no, you're absolutely right. It, it was a slot that should have been reserved for, well, not reserved, but it should have gone to Ethel and Ernest. Mm. And certainly, yeah, in terms of the, the emotional journey of a film uh, and finding Dory, it's very by committee and very forced to be honest. Uh, Ethel and Ernest comes from very honest and authentic source material, and it's delivered in a very faithful and, and respectful way. You get more out of it. It's a more human film. The hopeful hypothetical situation would be that it was very, very difficult conversations that led to a very, very difficult decision being made. Probably more realistically, they just thought, oh, Finding Dory. <laughs> well, that's got to go in, right? <laughs> my kids love that one and I, I suppose that these decisions were made months ago as well and the reaction to Ethel and Ernest over Christmas uh, something like 8 million people watched it and Twitter was absolutely ablaze with people who would not normally have commented about animated films saying that it was the best thing that they saw on TV over Christmas yeah. and so perhaps in hindsight well, you would hope BAFTA are kind of thinking God, we, we dropped the ball a little bit here. That That is a film that should really have gone through. But the fact that they couldn't see it during the selection process uh, enough to put it into this uh, category is a shame. Well, I mean, this is an area of the industry where balls are very often dropped. Mm -hmm. Every year, balls all over the place. Yeah. But elsewhere in the BAFTAs, other categories of note. Well, we'll get this one out of the way, the VFX, which I'm less crazy about, but... What do we got here? Arrival, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Beasts. That's the Harry Potter thing, right? It is. It's the Harry Potter thing. The Jungle Book, the non-animated Jungle Book. But everything's animated. And Rogue One. 
I have not seen a single one of those. Hmm. I've seen two of those, and um, the two that I've seen, I'd probably go with Star Wars because there's a lot. You know, they've really crafted the world there. I'd I, and I'd love to see the others, but um, yeah. I suppose people will go for the uh, the Jungle Book. Uh, you'd hope so, but um, according to the uh, Squiggly readership, Ben, uh, we've obviously got a poll on uh, on Squiggly dot com, so you can vote yourself for uh, what you'd like to see win the BAFTA. And uh, it's a tie at the moment between Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and Rogue One, uh, both on twenty five percent each. Mm. Well, neck and neck. Mm. What do people want for the uh feature film for the feature film um they just want a, a good clean fair fight ben and also kubo on the two strings at 59 percent. i'm still i'm more annoyed about the snubbing of trolls and sausage party frankly <laughs> did you ever see sausage party i didn't see sausage party no I don't it's not even like fun to watch as like a joke Oh, right. Like, like the room. And you're not even supposed to watch a comedy film as a joke anyway. Like, the joke is supposed to be in the comedy. But when you know something's going to be so bad, it was just angeringly badly written and produced and presented. It was just an annoyance that it got made. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know, like, I've, I'm not a big Seth Rogen fan, but I've, I have seen him, obviously, over the years. I saw Freaks and Geeks and... He was pretty good in that, and a couple of films over the years has been pretty funny. I know he is capable of being sort of witty, but they were so childish, the jokes, that it communicated such a low expectation of what an audience would find funny. It was an insult to human intelligence, I would say. Wow. As someone who enjoys bawdy raucous ribald humor they're gonna stick that one on the posters <laughs> a pandering insult to human emotional intelligence then mitchellsquiggly.com <laughs> so more optimistically short animation baftas yeah it's a student's showcase isn't it again it's always the case that the bafta kind of celebrate uh, the student work don't they 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 really uh Hold it in high regard, which is nice to see. Uh, and two films from the uh, NFTS here. The Alan Dimension, I know, I've seen it a few times in festivals, and it always slays the audience, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it, I, you watch it in a more sterile kind of context, watching it on a DVD screen or a Vimeo link. You're like, oh, that's pretty good. And then you watch it in like, a room full of people, and it kills. Yeah. Like, ah, Okay, so that you know, this is definitely a crowd pleaser in the very literal sense. Some some films just really th- that environment really does them a lot of favors, you know. It's a good bit of character work for uh, Kevin Eldon as well, the Ellen dimension. Kevin Eldon, he's great when he's great. What he's also very good at is just being an everyman. And sometimes I sort of feel like, well, you could have just gotten anyone to play that character. Like, it's interesting how some celebrities, or some people who you would hold on in higher esteem than just joke you, no one, they don't bring this super themness to every role. Mm. Like, a Robin Williams character would always have, like, Robin Williams infused in every delivery. Jim Carrey, lots of British character actors and voice performers would be the same. They'd put their stamp on it. Billy West, Maurice LaMarche all sorts of, you know, people who are known as stalwarts of the American voice actor scene, or comedians, if it's like someone like Eddie Murphy playing a donkey, he'll bring his Eddie Murphiness 
and crank it up to 11. But what Kevin Eldon does, oftentimes I found with animated voiceover work, is he's just a guy with a certain bored cadence to him. But it's odd how he's not... Because he also is capable of playing these incredibly bizarre, surreal, broad characters Mm. from the, you know, big train sketches and jam and, you know, stuff like that. He, He could go to very, very extreme, bizarre places. But with his animation voiceover work, I, I thought it's interesting. It's, it's usually quite understated. It's usually some middle-class, boring, dour, middle-aged man. Yeah, so, but yeah, he did a great job. I mean, NFTS, of course, good for uh, getting names involved in films. She isn't always going to make a film a dead set for a, an award nomination, but certainly the strength of the Alan dimension as a story is you know, is very nice. It's very it's very British, mm. which, you know, again, makes it sort of stand out a bit from the feature film categories. At least in one category, the niceness of British middle-class, middle-aged couples <laughs> is, is represented somewhat. Yeah. And there's Tough, which I think is from Kingston. Yes. That's by Jennifer Zeng, who we talked to at Encounters. And uh, talked to again uh, at a little more length for a feature a month or so ago, a couple months. Um, so you can read about that. And uh, that's a nice little film. Lovely color palette. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go onto our Instagram, she did this. Um, a lot of it's hand-drawn. So she took a lot of the actual like hand-drawn cells and made little flip books out of them. And we have a little video on our Instagram from a few months back, I think in September, where she's showing off some of that. So, yeah. I did like that film. We showed it at uh, Manchester Animation Festival. Um, oh yeah, I was uh, I was very pleased that that one particular one got through. It's just it's visually interesting. The story is just very engaging. This this conversation and it, it kind of takes you to a world that you might not have uh, considered, shall we say? Because it's her basically interviewing her grandma, isn't it, about living uh, in in China during the Cultural Revolution? Uh, is it a grandma or is it her mum? I'm not entirely sure. Family member, but yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a very um, well, it stands apart, really. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, a, it's a nice film. So, Mazel Tov, and I, of course, we will follow through on that when uh, when we find out who won mm. and truth be told i've been i was saying before we started recording i've been down a bit of a rabbit hole since i got back from uh my my brief holiday to a big pile of stuff that was waiting for me on my return <laughs> so i've not been that plugged into new animation goings on apart from the sort of major stuff anything happened that uh, you think will grab me by my proverbial shortened curlies if you'll pardon the image uh no no <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing's nothing's happened. Well, here's something I guess uh, that kind of ties in with what we were talking about. I don't know if it was last episode, probably not the one before. I think I was talking about Auteur de Minuit mm-hmm. and how I'm kind of generally enamored of their films. Uh, we just got tweeted something yesterday from FestivalScope.com. Uh, you can see a bunch of those films we were talking about online for I guess a month or so. There was one called Summer, which I was talking about, I know, and um, Jukai, which was the mm-hmm. one about the Japanese suicide forest. Yeah. Uh, also Peripheria, which I think we both are quite fond of. Oh, uh, yes. And I do see there's a newer town called Panic, which are always fun. Yeah. So yeah, that's something to look into if you want to watch some animated films. Otherwise, I think uh, I think we're done. Well, tell you what, why don't we go into the guest? We forgot how to do it then. We forgot how to do podcasting. <laughs> oh, f- we forgot the interview. Sh- 
Some of you may have listened to another podcast special that I did with Wes Allard over the holidays, which went down rather well. We're going to hopefully make it into a series, and it's about music and animation. It was called Animation Composed. We talked to some people from Pollen Music Group, talking about doing stuff for Google ATAP, the Spotlight Stories series, which we've talked about quite a bit on this very podcast as well. Uh, we played some music from the film Pearl. Very nice song. It's an interesting thing. It's like a, you know, the way they kind of put their music together. It's kind of, you know, it's a team effort. But it's a quite effective little folksy song. It certainly works very well with the film. The film was Pearl, which can be viewed either just, you know, standard on YouTube or in the kind of 360 YouTube viewing way. Or you can, you know, put your phone in one of those homemade headset things. Or if you have an actual proper headset, uh, you can experience this series in full VR. I would say listening to the uh, the, the composer's uh, talk through the way that they put Pearl together is absolutely fascinating and it leads you to think about you know your maybe your own creative considerations if, if you're uh, in the middle of making a film or or considering music it is uh, a, a fascinating interview I think so I think that that certainly it's something that people could come away from because it is a it's a big brick wall for people making films is you know handling the music and you know you get it wrong you know, you, you pay for it. It mm. kills the film. So absolutely, I think, for that kind of reason, I think that's why we want to keep on with it. Because, you know, there are also going to be a lot of different perspectives on how you go about that. But certainly with Pearl, they did a great job. And we spoke with Patrick Osborne, who some people may know from Feast. I think Laura talked to him just before Feast, I think, got uh, really, really huge. So that was back when he was at Disney. This is him kind of breaking loose of that and uh, doing something with Google. And a pretty interesting project. Certainly, it's not something that feels super Disney-ish. Like, a lot of people, when they come out of Disney, like, they, they have the sort of Disney-ness running through their veins, and they mm. can't sort of shake it off. This is a pretty clean break type film, I felt. Yeah. Similar to Feast in a certain respect, in that it's kind of jump-cut heavy. But other than that, it's a completely different kind of film experience. And we'll know, I think, the Oscars, the 28th or something, by the end of the month, we'll know the... Uh, it's the 24th of 20, January, 24th. so in the next podcast we'll be whinging about them as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So <laughs> We're nothing if not consistent. <laughs> but nice to see it in the running regardless of the outcome, and uh, certainly uh, Patrick had some interesting insights into the process. For those who, who want to listen back to the Feast podcast, it was episode 23. Blimey, Ben. 23. What are we on now? Episode million? Something like that? Something like that. Watching Feast again... Uh, and knowing where uh, Patrick went uh, to do uh, VR, I, I, I remember watching Feast again and thinking, well, that would have been pretty spectacular in VR. Hmm. It seems like it's always been a consideration of, of the director to sort of um, the, knowing that the camera is the audience in a particular way. Uh, the bit where the food's flying through the air and the fact that the film is more or less done from the dog's eye view from, you know, from that level is something that that would have been extremely interesting in, in VR. I mean, it's interesting as a straightforward film. Um, but uh, yeah, Patrick Osborne is a, a good choice for, for Google to uh, create a film like Pearl. Google Spotlight Stories, I think they have, you know, lots of other things up their sleeve. I think they are sort of aiming to develop it more and more and more. I think what Pearl kind of mm. marks is one of the biggest steps forward in terms of the technical complexity in the sense that it's using a style of animation that 
needs to kind of render in real time. Uh, well, I mean, that's the case for all of it in a sense, but I think the concessions made to the actual sort of, you know, the, the level of detail and that kind of thing is, has been very well done. Like, if you did it much more, it would start to look like a sort of N64-era video game. But this one has just the right balance of being immersed in something that isn't a video game that you don't have any direct influence over, but you can let it play out as a story and it's, it feels satisfying. So I think that, yeah, at the time, certainly it was probably the most complex project they'd taken on. Certainly it's an interesting sign of things to come. Mm. Shall we hear from Patrick Osborne in the meanwhile to uh, discuss his experiences making Pearl? Let's. Well, I met uh, Jan Pinkova and Karen Duffalo at Annecy probably the day before or after I met you guys. Uh-huh. It's kind of neat to to meet all these different animation people in the world. And they, they weren't really we were they weren't really looking necessarily to do something with me then. It was just sort of like a lunch that I met them. But I talked we talked about the Glenn Keane thing that, that was just kind of on its way out then. And I think two weeks before they showed that on YouTube for the first time and they had a version on the phone that was really cool. It was like working. So I thought I thought it'd be neat to experiment in this world. You know, before I got most of the opportunities I've had it anywhere I've been, I always thought it'd be cool to make a career out of making shorts, but it didn't seem like possible. It didn't seem like a, a financially viable world, really. And, you know, with this new, anytime there's kind of an explosion in technology or a new way of looking at things, there's an opportunity to make creative stuff with that technology. And it was kind of neat to see that they were trying to do that. And I knew that the VR headset world was just around the corner and we might be able to do it with, for that too. So it was it was kind of meeting at Annecy and then I met him again at CTN and went through a couple ideas that I could possibly do. But it wasn't until I actually decided to leave Disney that I decided to actually do it um, and jump on. But that's kind of when the, when the, that was when the decision happened after I decided to take off from the studio and try to make it out there as an independent that I wanted to take on a couple projects that were fresh and that felt like there was a challenge to them. One of those. Had there been, um, uh, had there not been rather projects like this sort of potentially, do you think you might have stayed on at Disney for a bit? Uh, well, I mean, there's, uh, when you work at a big studio, you can't really pitch original stuff out there around the world right. to other places. And Disney is a wonderful place, but there's a lot of great directors there that are ahead of me as far as uh, <clears throat> clout and and ability, really, and uh, the line to do a feature there is quite long, considering uh, they only make one movie a year, and I didn't really want to stop making stuff in that way for a while. It got, it's kind of addicting to get to create something from nothing to to finish, so that line is daunting, so I decided that it would be best for me to kind of go out my own and see what it was like while I had the opportunity because the opportunity doesn't stay around forever either. You kind of fade off. Hmm. So um, since then I've been, you know, pitching stuff around and with Google, it's a one project thing. It's not exclusive. I can continue working on getting other stuff off the ground. And that was the advantage to, to jumping out and doing something like this, that, that you can uh, kind of get a foothold in the industry itself as an independent uh, creator and start making things that way. 
when you began, were you set any kind of brief or parameters to work within, or was the idea something you had pretty much free reign with? There wasn't really a lot of parameters other than it has to be, it was going to be using the mobile platform in some way. So it had to be, if it was going to be 3D, it had to be uh, simple enough in its design that it could render in real time on a, on a mobile device, which I don't mind. I think uh, simplicity in design is a fun constraint that it was like, it's kind of worth it sometimes to give yourself a, a limit that's pretty difficult and see if you can do it. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then it, um, there wasn't a literal time length, but I do think shorts have, in my mind, you know, there's a five or six minute limit for this kind of thing, especially for how long someone would hold up a phone, if it was going to be that phone version. In the VR space, I think the amount of time you can spend in the world is a lot longer now. It's a lot more comfortable to turn your head around instead of just to hold the phone up. But I think those were really the only constraints. And then I, I wanted to do something that had edits in it. And it felt kind of cinematic. Um, and, and it felt like it had a real sense of place. And my cheat to put it in a car the whole time is a way to give you, you as the viewer, a sense of space where you know which way it's front and back. But you can still cut weather and time of day and all that kind of stuff and make, make a film that happens over time. Um, and not disorient the viewer. So it was kind of, it started there. I thought, well, I could do it in the car. That would be cool. And then you have the ideas of, well, what if it's like a giving tree story, like that Shel Silverstein story, kind of inspired by the idea of using up an object, like passing it along and using it up. And, um, and then, you know, you start to think about character, and it, uh, a story kind of comes out of that. Uh, and it ended up being about passing on not only... Um, an object like a car, but also like a talent or a passion or interest, uh, which my father, my father draws and he was a toy designer. So this idea of passing on a talent is kind of like, you know, it's personal and I think it's a nice thing. It's a nice gift to give my, my dad to talk about this kind of stuff. You know, the appreciation of, of, of uh, a talent and a passion for drawing passed on in my own way is this music story. So it kind of builds from a, requ a technical requirement and a, and a desire to do something cinematically with this format, and then uh, grew out of that. The um, well, the, using the music angle being—I mean, it's a major part of the film, and it's sort of similar, I guess, with considering like Feast was very music-driven. Uh, in this case, the song serves as kind of a binding part of the story. Yeah. Is music a sort of passion of yours, or is it more sort of an analogous thing, you know, to the art? Yeah, well, I, I yeah I do. Um, I play piano. I played piano since I was a four-year-old, mm -hmm. kind of forced to as a kid, and then eventually, when you realize that that maybe girls like it, that you start to be okay with it when you're like thirteen, you know. Yeah. Um, and my dad plays piano too, but it, it was one of those. I I'm into I'm into like the kind of indie folk scene. Uh, I go to South by Southwest every year, or try to at least, and see music there. And I wanted to do something with that, and I thought it's a really cool, like, to take this really high-tech stuff, this new VR, this 360 thing, and combine it with something that's kind of folky mm -hmm. uh, would be kind of fun. It's a nice juxtaposition of ideas. And then the actual structure of the, of the film is the same as like a pop song, and I feel like that's a fairly recognizable structure. People get the verse-chorus nature of pop songs, and if I 
you always want some kind of structure to hang your story on. It just makes you understand it better. And I thought a, a pop song structure would be kind of interesting and cool to do in a in a short film. So, um, you know, it's got like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge sort of idea to it uh, within a reprise at the end. And, um, you know, it, <clears throat> I think if you layer ideas together, as long as they, as long as you're kind of sure about what you're, how they, how they add up and that they make something more interesting, it's kind of fun to layer it all together and, and see what you get. Um, but music, yeah, is a huge part. It made it a little bit difficult. Um, this story is variable in length if you watch it on the app or in VR because it's a game engine, so it can wait for you if you're not looking at the right place or, um, you know, in the right direction. So it's the, the song itself, though, makes that more difficult because the song is timed and the, and the characters move to the music in a particular way. So you only have a few moments where you can really mess with that. Um, otherwise, you're kind of stuck to the, the like within the verses and the choruses. You really have to be pretty tight on what your um, what your timing is. But it's kind of cool to you know, give it a shot. So, is that also the case with the version that's on YouTube? Um, yes, if you're watching it on Android phone, YouTube has a game engine built into it through the Spotlight Story stuff, where it's not actually playing a video. It's it's rendering real time on the phone. For and streaming um, on Android devices. That doesn't work on the iPhone, but the iPhone has the app, the free app download, and that that um, that does that. So there's a version on each type of device that you can watch that has it, but it requires a pretty strong phone to do it. You know, when you're in the when you're in the Vive version, you can stand up and look out the sunroof, like stick your head out the window if you want. Um, so there's something pretty cool about that immersive version of the story, I think. Uh, Just in terms of, of the planning of the story, because of how many sort of considerations there have to be, is it traditionally storyboarded out, or is, like, is there a similar process that's kind of adapted to accommodate all of the things that are going on? It's kind of... There's no real tool to make storyboarding easy for this kind of stuff, because uh, you don't really have a way to draw... You know, you want a sphere around you that you're drawing on, and I think, you know, VR tools will develop soon to wear the headset itself while making stuff. I know a couple of the engines are already starting to make that, and Tilt Brush like a drawing tool for 3D. And I think there's there's a lot of stuff happening in that, in that area. For me, I boarded it out, but it was only like an emotional board of like these moments that happen and how they string together. It wasn't like a... Uh, finished thing so and you, you never really got a finished thing until it was done so we did a the board just kind of sell the story beats but it was not dimensionally accurate and then we did a um, layout like a 3d layout with just characters that are just blocks of color that was actually in 3d so you could you could kind of get a sense of the space but then the acting isn't there so you had to kind of mix the two in your head and there's a lot of space and luckily the the Google people, um, Jan and Karen and Cassidy and David, our producer, are pretty on board with going along with the pitch and the ideas and just hoping that it worked in the end. So we didn't really know it worked until about a month ago when it was all strung together. We finished doing the creative stuff in, in November, but it took about four months to optimize it so it ran fast enough to actually watch. And that's a tough thing to do is kind of 
have an idea and put it together and then not be able to see a finished work for that long. There's no such thing as an edit, you know, so that's the issue. <laughs> yeah, are you, have you seen, or, or were you sort of, did you get to look at other ATAP projects during the development of it? Yeah, I mean, I was in the office mm-hmm. at ATAP, so it's a, it's a really cool little warehouse. They're working on all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, if you saw their presentation at, at ATAP, the stuff they present is just way out there and different and really exciting, and it's very different than the stuff that we were working on. So I saw that, and I got to see all the other spotlight stories that were being made, too, and um, I liked that they were all pretty different. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was neat that none of them felt like any other one. They all felt like they were taking their own approach to everything, and um, it'll be cool for you guys to see um, the other one at Annecy. I think some of those guys are going from Nexus, mm. so that, that's cool, too. So, yeah, it's a really exciting room. I was only up there a couple of days each week because I live in L.A., and it's in, it's in San Jose and Mountain View, but um, it was fun to kind of see all the scientists around making stuff. From your perspective, it's like seeing them at work and seeing these different projects and, of course, your own experience. Do you feel that there's a firm sort of future for this kind of marriage of VR and, and storytelling? Because it seems to me that this, there's something in the air that people are you know, quite excited about this. And do you sure. think this could be something that could potentially work for like more long-form projects, maybe? Yeah, I do think it could. Uh, it, it's going to require the right thing, and it's, it's very difficult mm. to make right now. So it would be interesting... That's why a lot of stuff you see right now is like very demo-y. Mm. You know, it's just like very simple game mechanics that people are introducing you to and playing with and stuff like that. So, you know, it's that kind of... There's a hype behind it right now for sure because there's there's funding. Like a lot of companies are wanting to make stuff for the new things that are coming out. And you can kind of jump on board that while it's available. Um, the real test will be how many people get it in their houses, which for... The Vive and the Oculus is pretty tough because they're pretty expensive and require an incredible computer. I think the PlayStation version of it is going to be more widespread because mm-hmm. uh, it's less expensive and a lot of people already have a PS4. You know, and then the, there's the mobile side of it too, which doesn't have some of the cool parts of the of the um, higher end, you know, um, work workhorse versions, but. You can, they're still kind of interesting. So I, I think there's that. I think there, it's, it's, I have one now, a Vive in my house, and it's really fun. Everything that comes out, I want to watch it because it's just there's something new and interesting about that. And I think that's kind of cool. That's not going to last forever, that hype, but um, if someone makes something amazing, I think it'll stick around. And for you, creatively, what ideally would you like to be working on after this? Well, I'm always just into doing something that feels like a challenge and is interesting and different that I haven't done. So um, I'm working on a couple features, and they're I like them because the story seems vital and now and interesting to tell. And um, I jumped on board as a producer of a TV show because I've never done that, and it seems I'm fascinated by how that all works, and I'm interested in in being involved in something like that at a pace that that comedy television works and to be working with writers that are of the caliber that we are working with and learn, you know, so everything I'm doing, I'm trying to kind of jump in and, and, you know, with all of my effort, but also uh, into situations that are a little bit different than I'm used to that I'm learning a lot. And uh, that's my only requirement is that it kind of is thrilling in some way. 
and I'm just kind of rolling with opportunities that arise. Thanks very much to Patrick Osborne, back on the podcast to talk about making Pearl for Google Spotlight Stories, presently shortlisted for an Oscar nomination. And we'll find out the results of that on January 24th. Uh, and that chat was from around the time Pearl launched online, and he has indeed been busy since then. Another project you might want to keep your eyes open for is the live-action and animation hybrid TV series Imaginary Mary, which he co-created and exec-produced. That'll start on ABC in the States in March, and in the meantime you can follow Patrick on Twitter at Patrick T. Osborne, and his website is BigHappyAccident.com. So that's all from us for this episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Of course, at Squiggly for site-specific updates and the website is squiggly.com. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash squigglymagazine and our Instagram is at squigglyanimation. Ciao for now and happy animating.